From New York, this is Democracy Now! Dueling rulings. Two federal judges have handed down conflicting decisions on the abortion pill mifepristone. An anti-abortion Trump-appointed judge in Texas halted the FDA's approval of the drug, while a judge in Washington state orders the FDA to maintain the status quo on mifepristone, which was approved by the FDA 23 years ago. We'll speak to the head of Planned Parenthood, Alexis McGill-Johnson, as well as Jessica Mason-Piclo of Rewire News. The anti-choice movement is authoritarian by nature, and they are using the federal courts to do what they can't do in state houses. We'll also talk to the co-founder of the Miscarriage and Abortion Hotline, who works to increase access to abortion pills, as well as the only independent abortion provider in Arizona. This leaves pregnant people and clinics in limbo, all while abortion access is already difficult or impossible for many in Arizona and across the country. We'll also look at how the federal judge in Texas based his ruling on the abortion pill in part on the 1873 Comstock Act, which banned the interstate mailing or distribution of, quote, obscene materials. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Two federal judges issued conflicting rulings around medication abortion Friday night, creating even greater turmoil amidst dwindling abortion rights in the United States. In Texas, a Trump-appointed judge placed a nationwide injunction on the FDA's approval of mifepristone, issued over two decades ago, which is due to take effect at the end of this week. The Justice Department is appealing the ruling. Meanwhile, in a separate case, just an hour later Friday night, a Washington state judge ordered the FDA not to make any changes to mifepristone's availability. After headlines, we'll spend the rest of the hour looking at the implications of these rulings. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has defended the frequent lavish trips he received from real estate billionaire and GOP megadonor Harlan Crow, saying he was advised at the time not to report them. Thomas also referred to Crow and his wife as being among his family's dearest friends. Meanwhile, more details are emerging about Harlan Crow in a resurfaced 2014 article published by the Dallas Morning News, in which a tour of his Dallas-area mansion revealed he had a collection of Nazi memorabilia, including a signed copy of Mein Kampf, signed by Adolf Hitler, paintings by Hitler, Nazi medallions, swastika embossed linens, and a garden filled with statues of 20th-century dictators. The Justice Department has launched a criminal investigation into an apparent leak of Pentagon documents revealing details about the U.S. role in the Ukraine war and Russian operations in Ukraine and beyond. They include data on U.S. surveillance drones in the region and ammunition needed by Ukrainian forces. The materials also contain information about China and reveal U.S. intelligence gathering on allies, including Ukraine, South Korea and Israel. The documents date from late February to early March, but have appeared on social media in recent weeks, including last Friday.
In Ukraine, an 11-year-old girl and her father were killed Sunday as Russia's military struck a residential building in the Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia. The violence came as a Ukrainian charity said it's reunited dozens of children with their families over the past week after they were deported from occupied parts of Ukraine. Russia has denied abducting the children, but said some youth were evacuated from the front lines for their own safety. This is Natalia Dok, a mother who reunited with her twin daughters Friday, months after they were taken to Russia occupied Crimea and told they would be put up for adoption. It was terribly difficult, but we kept on going. We did not sleep at nights. We slept sitting up. We stopped very little. Our goal was to pick the children up. We knew that we had to achieve it despite all obstacles. Yes, we left everything behind, relatives and friends. Ukraine says more than 19,000 children have been taken to Russian territory since President Vladimir Putin ordered his military to invade Ukraine last year. The United Nations has said the forced deportations violate international humanitarian law and mount to a war crime. China conducted three days of live-fire military drills around Taiwan involving dozens of Chinese warplanes and 11 naval vessels, including an aircraft carrier. China launched the war games as Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen wrapped up a visit to the U.S., where she met with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other lawmakers. On Friday, President Tsai Ing-wen defended her trip, which Beijing called a provocation and views as a threat to its sovereignty over Taiwan. We showed the international community that in the face of pressure and threats, Taiwan will be even more united and will absolutely not yield to suppression, nor due to obstructions, stop exchanges with the world. Israel's military has fired artillery shells and launched airstrikes on Syria in response to a half-dozen rockets fired at northern Israel and the occupied Golan Heights from Syrian territory over the weekend. Syria's government says it was the tenth attack on Syrian territory by Israel so far this year. This follows Israeli airstrikes on Gaza and southern Lebanon in response to rocket fire. Israel's bombing of Gaza on Friday destroyed the home of Mohanad Abu Nima, a 23-year-old Palestinian taxi driver who said he and his family narrowly survived death. If I was in the car, I would have died. Money and the car can be redeemed. But what does the citizen have to do in all of this? What do the children, my two-year-old sister, my parents and siblings have to do in all of this? This is a residential area. There's nothing here but a home, crops, a building, agricultural land. Earlier today, Palestinian health officials said 15-year-old Mohammed Fayez Bilhan was killed in an Israeli military raid in the occupied West Bank near the city of Jericho. In Tel Aviv, an Italian tourist was killed and five others injured Friday when a Palestinian man with Israeli citizenship rammed a car into a crowd of pedestrians. Israeli security forces then shot and killed him. The attack came after Israeli troops were filmed beating and tear-gassing Palestinian worshippers inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque in eastern—in occupied East Jerusalem last week, prompting condemnation by Palestinians and world leaders. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of Israelis resumed protests over the weekend, demanding the far-right government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu cancel plans to dramatically weaken Israel's judiciary. 
in Yemen. Saudi officials are meeting with Houthi leaders for peace talks mediated by Oman in hopes of finding a path to end the brutal war that's driven Yemen to a humanitarian catastrophe. The U.N. expressed hope the renewed momentum towards ending the conflict, including the recent resumption of ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran, could finally lead to a sustainable peace deal. This is chief Houthi negotiator Mohammed Abdul Salam speaking from the airport in Sana'a on Saturday as the Omani delegation arrived in the Yemeni capital. Our just demands are stopping the aggression completely, lifting the blockade completely, paying the salaries of all Yemeni employees from oil and gas revenues for all Yemeni employees, as well as the exit of foreign forces from Yemen, compensations and reconstruction. Iranian authorities say they're installing surveillance cameras in public spaces in order to identify and bring to justice women who are not wearing the mandatory hijab. This is Iran's chief of police. With the use of advanced technology and equipment, the person is identified. She will be warned, then that person will be introduced to the judicial system with the documents to deal with the issue. This comes just over six months after the death of Masamini while in custody of the so-called morality police, which spurred a nationwide revolt. A growing number of Iranian women are choosing to go unveiled outside their homes despite the risks of arrest and violent crackdown on dissent. Iranian police also warned businesses, including shops and restaurants, they could be shut down if they violate the hijab law. Back in the United States and Tennessee, the Nashville Metropolitan Council could reinstate Democratic State Representative Justin Jones as early as today after he was expelled by the Republican-led state legislature last week, alongside fellow State Representative Justin Pearson of Memphis for leading a protest against gun violence on the chamber floor. The Board of Commissioners for Shelby County is scheduled to hold a special meeting Wednesday to consider reappointing Justin Pearson to his position. The reappointments would be temporary, but both both lawmakers could run in special election to reclaim their seats. On Sunday, Pearson spoke at an Eastern service in Memphis. They convinced themselves that this would be the end because we wouldn't see past the veil of their faux democracy and understand it for what it truly is, which is a mobocracy ruled by the rules of white supremacy and patriarchy. On Friday, Vice President Kamala Harris traveled to Nashville, where she met with the expelled lawmakers and praised their courage in standing up for their constituents. In New Jersey, unions representing 9,000 faculty and academic staff have gone on strike at Rutgers University's three main campuses in New Brunswick, Newark, and Camden. They're demanding increased pay and better job security, especially for poorly paid graduate workers and adjunct faculty. It's the first strike by educators in Rutgers' 257-year history. And here in New York, family and community members are demanding justice for Raul de la Cruz, a 42-year-old man from the Bronx who was critically injured in late March by New York police officers who shot him six times. De la Cruz was experiencing mental health crisis when his father called 311 for help. The call was routed to a 911 operator who dispatched police who did not speak Spanish. The officers began firing at de la Cruz within seconds of arriving, claiming he had a knife. De la Cruz was taken to the hospital, where he remained unconscious for for days is now slowly recovering. His supporters rallied outside the Bronx police precinct Friday. This is Dela Cruz's nine-year-old cousin, Juliana Fuentes, confronting police officers.
And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we spend the hour looking at perhaps the most significant legal rulings on abortion since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. On Friday, a Trump-appointed anti-abortion federal judge in Texas revoked the Food and Drug Administration approval of the abortion pill mifepristone, which is part of the most common abortion method in the United States. Shortly after the Texas ruling was announced, a federal judge in Washington state ordered the FDA to keep mifepristone on the market and maintain the status quo. The drug was approved by the FDA 23 years ago. Hundreds of studies have proven the drug to be highly safe and effective. The judge in Texas, Matthew Kazmarek, based his ruling in part on the 1873 Comstock Act, which banned the interstate mailing or distribution of, quote, obscene materials. On Friday night, the Justice Department appealed the Texas ruling. In a statement, Attorney General Merrick Garland said, quote, today's decision overturns the FDA's expert judgment rendered over two decades ago that mifepristone is safe and effective. The department will continue to defend the FDA's decision, unquote. With the dueling rulings in Texas and Washington state, future access to mifepristone may be decided by the conservative-controlled Supreme Court. On Sunday, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra was interviewed about the Texas ruling by CNN's Dana Bash. But are, are you taking it off the table that uh, you will recommend the FDA ignore a ban? Everything is on the table. The president said that way back when the Dobbs decision came out. Every option is on the table. After Becerra's comment, an HHS spokesperson issued a clarifying statement tweeting, quote, as dangerous a precedent it sets for a court to disregard FDA's expert judgment regarding a drug safety and efficacy, it would also set a dangerous precedent for the administration to disregard a binding decision. Well, we begin today's show with Alexis McGill Johnson, president and CEO of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Welcome to Democracy Now! First, your reaction to Judge Kaczmarek's decision in Texas. Uh, good morning, Amy. Um, what can I say? The, re the reaction feels a lot like Dobbs, right? Uh, not a shock or a surprise, but you still feel the gut punch. And I think that's exactly what we felt on Friday evening, on Good Friday evening for this judge, uh, the singular conservative activist judge to uh, lay down this uh, decision to block uh, decades of approval of Mifepristone that is clearly been safely used for over 23 years in more than 60 countries, more than 5 million patients, uh, and to dare, uh, you know, challenge the FDA, not just on mifepristone, um, but also the implications that are far-reaching for other, other medications. So if you could explain, Alexis, um, mifepristone might surprise people, part of a two-drug cocktail that is used in most of the abortions in the United States, just how widespread this is and what exactly does it mean? The judge said it would go into effect in seven days, so it's not in effect yet. Uh, but the, what this also means for Planned Parenthood. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that um, that opportunity to offer some patient reassurance for the next seven days. That uh, you know there are people who are waking up today, uh, tomorrow, who will have appointments that they have already made because they were planning to make decisions about their own lives and their bodies, and they will be seeking access to mifepristone and medication abortion uh, over the next seven days. And those appointments will still be available. Uh, look, the um, the process for medication abortion, uh, the, the the standard uh, uses mifepristone as the first uh, medication and misoprostol as the second medication. It is a used in the majority of um, early uh, terminations, so under about 12 weeks or so, 10 to 12 weeks. And it is um, it is common. It's something that people can both do in a self-managed way uh, in the privacy of their own home. Uh, what we saw often over the last um, that last year and a half so since SBA and the Dobbs decision or you know, people having to travel multiple hours out of state, already taking time off from work, time off uh, to uh, uh, to get childcare and 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 so forth, uh, securing access to mifepristone and then having to drive back and, again, being able to, to manage at their convenience uh, the, uh, the end of their pregnancies. Uh, and so it will be significant if, in fact, this drug comes off the market uh, in the next seven days or, you know, um, in, in the next short period, uh, because the majority of people who are seeking access to abortion are seeking it through this method. Uh, and obviously it would have, um, you know, it would wreak havoc on our healthcare situation. And what does it mean for Planned Parenthood clinics around the country? I want to ask about two things. One is uh, mefepristone itself, if you have the drug um, in places. But also, this isn't just about mefepristone. If a judge can rule uh, against the FDA an approval, which hasn't been done before, it could be about insulin, it could be about vaccinations, it could be on almost anything, a judge overruling scientists and what this means for um, Planned Parenthood. Well, you're absolutely right. I think that is the um, that is the alarm. You know, I've been saying not only is this a crisis of, of public health, precisely for those reasons, because it will impact, you know, the uh, patient seeking access to abortion, uh, but it also like really threatens our process at the FDA, which is you know a very independent body that relies on evidence and uh, rigor to test the implications and the health, uh, the public health, uh, for uh, for our country. And, you know, medicine relies on that kind of rigor, relies on that, not on the kind of junk science that uh, this judge relied on from the anti-abortion opponents. So it could have implications uh, for cancer drugs, for drugs that, uh, you know, rely on stem cell research. There are so many ways in which this decision could, could you know, again, as, as it's been called unprecedented, really implicate the public health crisis. It also is a crisis of democracy. You know, it is um, one in which this judge was guaranteed because the organization that brought the lawsuit against the FDA brought it in Amarillo, guaranteeing they would get this conservative activist judge, Judge Kaczmarek, uh, guaranteeing it, the decision would then be appealed to the Fifth Circuit, also conservative, and then to the Supreme Court. So the fact that, you know, we don't know what the implications will be because we, you know, we need to see, watch the process play out with the FDA 
and HHS and the administration. And at the same time, we, uh, you know, we need to ensure that our, you know, patients are getting the care that they need. So for Planned Parenthood, what that means is each individual affiliate will be making their own decisions uh, for operating reasons. Um, and there are also, as you mentioned earlier, competing orders now with the state of Washington that is suing to protect access to mifepristone in the states um, that they are, uh, that they represent. Um, so, you know, we we are sorting it out in real time along with everyone else, but trying to reassure those folks this week uh, that they will be able to get the care where abortion is available and to or uh, to get referred out of state where abortion um, is banned. And then to ensure that uh, we we both create access, but also, you know, looking at other protocols like the double MISO protocol, uh, misoprostol protocol in, short, in, in order to uh, make sure that we can get patients the care that they, Finally, that they are asking for. Alexis Miguel Johnson, I know you you have to go. But you mentioned Judge Kaczmarek, and you're before him, Planned Parenthood is before him, in another case, a $1.8 billion lawsuit. Um, can you explain what that's about before the same judge in Amarillo? Before the same judge, yes. Uh, there was a Title X case against minors, the, this Mifepristone case uh, in the FDA, and Planned Parenthood. There uh, are uh, a False Claims Act that is totally meritless uh, related to our three Texas affiliates um, billing uh, Medicaid for which they were entitled to bill because they were able to do that under an injunction. And um, and the judge, again, is, is uh, you know, we're we're in litigation right now, where we will uh, go before this judge in the fall. And you know, if if you know what we are seeing is is any indication, you know his his uh, opposition, his ability to actually uh, provide um, you know independent uh, judgment, independent of his own personal convictions, I think um, is really in question here. I'm I'm very deeply concerned uh, about the implications for for uh, the organization and also really, again, deeply concerned for our democracy. One lone conservative activist, activist judge should not be able to take away access to uh, medical care uh, from, you know, for 50 percent of the country. Um, and in fact, this judgment, as we know, won't just stay in Texas. This is how it will have implications for California, for New York, for Illinois, for places where uh, they have declared themselves to be oasis states. Uh, for care. Because what we know, Amy, is that people will not stop seeking access to abortion. We are just making it harder for people to get the medication and the care that they need. And that is just unconscionable. Alexis McGill-Johnson, want to thank you for being with us, president and CEO of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Coming up, we continue to look at the future of the abortion pill, mefepristone, and the most significant legal rulings on abortion since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. Stay with us. You who scribble on walls with your minuscule minds You who make midnight calls, you who rattle my blinds The violence you preach is the core of your creed Well, you don't speak for me You call yourselves patriots, swastika style You feed on the fear of the ignorant child There's no love of nation, nor people, or land In the hatred behind yours for me No, you don't speak for me I've seen where you come from I've seen where you lead 
It's a poisonous fruit that grows from your seed. You stir up the hatred till something explodes. Well, you don't speak for me. You who slaughter free creatures and then call it sport. You proudly display the corpses you've shot. You talk about freedom and rights and control, but you don't speak for me. You who poison the airwaves with Genghis Khan news. You broadcast your bias and call it the news. You say that you speak for the millions out there and deny that you're lighting a dangerous fuse. Well, you don't speak for me. No, you don't speak. You for don't me. speak for me. By Judy Small. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodmoves. We continue our roundtable on these major decisions that came out Friday night. Two federal judges handing down conflicting decisions on the abortion pill, Mifepristone. An anti-abortion Trump-appointed judge in Texas halting the 23-year-old FDA approval of the drug, while a judge in Washington state ordered the FDA to maintain the status quo on the abortion pill. In 17 states where the Attorneys general had brought a lawsuit, including the uh, District of Columbia. For more, we're joined by Jessica Mason-Piclo, uh, executive director of Rewire News Group, author of The End of Roe v. Wade, Inside the Rights Plan to Destroy Legal Abortion. Jessica, if I can get your response to these decisions, clearly in Washington state, the judge was waiting for the ruling from Texas and then handed down his. And then talk about what's happening in Iowa with the attorney general halting payments for rape victims, contraceptives. Um, and abortions. And the reason I'm putting these two together is this is a full frontal assault. It really is. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. And I think what we are really seeing are the second, third, and fourth dominoes falling as a result, not just of the Dobbs decision, but of the Supreme Court's decision a year prior to that to let Texas's SB8 take effect on the shadow docket. Those decisions cumulatively have sent a signal to conservative judges across the country that they can behave in any manner they choose when it comes to restricting reproductive autonomy. These decisions out of Texas and the actions taken in Iowa are lawless, and we need to call them lawless. Uh, it's good that the Democratic attorneys general filed the lawsuit in Washington um, as a countermeasure, because what we have now is a full picture of what trying to secure abortion rights and access via the federal courts looks like now. And it is competing jurisdictions shopping for favorable decisions, which is a poor sign, as Alexis McGill Johnson uh, indicated before me, on the health of our democracy. This is truly a constitutional crisis we find ourselves in. So, if you can talk about what happened in Iowa, um, this came out last week. Uh, the Des Moines Register reported it. Mm -hmm. Right. So what we have now is an attorney general who is sua sponte on her own functionally saying, I am going to review our policy, state policy to see if we should be reimbursing um, uh, 
costs related to um, rape exams, for example, um, and other reproductive health services to see whether or not they're justified anymore. What we are hearing are conservatives coalescing around the idea that reproductive health care is never necessary for women and people who can become pregnant. And that is alarming. Let me ask you um, about Clarence Thomas um, and all the revelations about his undisclosed vacations with his wife, the well-known anti-abortion activist Jenny Thomas, um, that have been supported by uh, Harlan Crow. So he's defended these frequent lavish trips by the billionaire Republican megadonor Harlan Crow, saying he was advised not to disclose this. Um, Thomas also referred to Crow and his wife as being among his family's dearest friends. Meanwhile, more information is emerging about Harlan Crow. Um, in which a tour of his Dallas-area mansion revealed he has a Nazi memorabilia collection, including a signed copy of Mein Kampf from Hitler, paintings by Hitler, Nazi medallions, swastika-embossed linens, and a garden filled with statues of 20th-century dictators. Now, I'm bringing this up here um, because when all this was coming out, there was also a painting of um, a group sitting around together, Harlan Crow, the dear friend of the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, next to Leonard Leo, founder of the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society, so key in the rise of Judge Kaczmarek in Amarillo, Texas. If you can talk about this through line. Sure, absolutely. And thank you for the opportunity, because what we really have in this Clarence Thomas story and the ancillaries that have spun off is a snapshot in how policy by conservatives is being made these days. And it's not in state houses, truly. It is in these um, almost secret societies to have Leonard Leo, one man who has spent over 20 years really influencing the conservative legal movement to the point where they have successfully captured the federal judiciary and can functionally turn it into a policymaking body is truly astonishing. And I think it's important to highlight that Clarence Thomas story with the story out of the Supreme Court election out of Wisconsin, where conservatives are already suggesting that they are going to try and impeach uh, uh, Supreme, it's Wisconsin Supreme Court Judge Janet Protasiewicz. I just messed up her last name. I apologize for that. But um, just simply for winning, because if Democrats win elections, according to conservatives, something must be amiss. Yet here we have the story of Clarence Thomas functionally amassing and retaining power simply by his access to a few wealthy donors. It, the contrast is shocking. I want to read from Jezebel. Um, which reports Kaczmarek, Judge Kaczmarek, also has deep connections to the conservative Federalist Society, which have not been previously reported. President Trump picked all three of his Supreme Court justices from a Federalist Society vetted list that was personally curated by the group's former executive vice president and current co-chair of the board, Leonard Leo. The Post reported that Kaczmarek, the Washington Post, uh, had attended meetings in law school and remains affiliated with the group, but that doesn't 
adequately describe his ties, because Merrick actually co-founded the Fort Worth, Texas chapter of the Federal Society, has spoken at least 10 of its events, most recently in New Orleans, um, the same day final briefs were due in the abortion pill case. Leonard Leo himself has financial ties to the firm, where Kaczmarek worked immediately before becoming a judge, after Trump first nominated Kaczmarek in 2017, First Liberty Institute began paying the Leo-aligned firm CRC advisors over $100,000 a year. At a February 2020 meeting, First Liberty Institute President, CEO Kelly Shackelford bragged about the wide-ranging efforts staged by various groups to influence Trump's selections for federal judges, saying some of us literally opened a whole operation on judicial nominations and vetting, he said. We poured millions of dollars into this to make sure the president has good information he picks the best judges. And then, finally, Leo's money is also being used to advance the abortion pill lawsuit specifically. Specifically, um, 22 Republican attorneys general filing a brief in support of taking the main abortion pill off the market. And wouldn't you know it, the Concord Fund was the top contributor to the Republican Attorneys General Association in 2022 with a million-dollar donation. Um, this is long in the planning. And the question is, um, Jessica, what do you think needs to be done at this point? There are now Congress members who are saying Congress has to pass um, a law protecting abortion. Uh, what about the congressional level and the and President Biden? Oh, so much. I mean, at a minimum, we should have some congressional hearings on how the Federalist Society and Leonard Leo gets its money and moves it around. When we have an operation that is pouring more money into lifetime appointments than they are in some federal elections, what is going on there? The people deserve some answers. And so I think daylight into the conservative legal movement is first and foremost what is required. It's important to know that the Republican Attorney General's Association was also intricately involved with the J6 uprising. So these folks are all connected and it is incumbent on us to really shine a light on those connections. This is not just about trying to restrict access to abortion pills. This is an authoritarian movement that is afoot in this country and Congress needs to act. Jessica Mason-Piccolo, we want to thank you so much for being with us, executive editor of Rewire News Group, co-author of The End of Roe v. Wade, Inside the Rights Plan to Destroy Legal Abortion. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. When the U.S. District Judge, the federal judge, Matthew Kaczmarek, ruled Friday in Texas that the Food and Drug Administration's 23-year-old approval of the leading abortion drug, mifepristone, violates the law, he cited the 1873 Comstock Act, the so-called anti-vice law, prohibits the mailing or distribution of quote, obscene materials, and has been dormant for half a century. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and the 50-year-old federal right to abortion it's in its Dobbs decision last year, the Justice Department issued a memorandum that said the Comstock Act does not prohibit the mailing of such drugs as mefepristone. But in his ruling, the Trump-appointed anti-abortion judge, Kaczmarek, agrees with plaintiffs in the case that the law does, in fact, prohibit mailing the drug. 
For more, we're joined by Lauren McIver-Thompson, historian of birth control, specialist in specifically the Comstock Act. Um, Lauren McIver-Thompson, if you can explain what this ruling is he he invoked from from the 19th century, 1870—what was it? Nine— 1873. 1873. You're right. So, yeah, this as a historian, when I read the opinion on Friday afternoon, uh, I was just kind of gobsmacked, Um, although I guess we shouldn't be surprised, as Jessica and Alexis already pointed out. Um, The Comstock Act of 1873 was uh, the product of a vice reformer, Anthony Comstock, who lobbied Congress um, in 1873, and the law was passed in, in March of 1873. So we're looking at 150 years now, just last, just last month. And the law essentially criminalized anything having to do with sex uh, at the federal level. Um, and that included instruments that could be used for the prevention of conception uh, or to procure abortion. And so for the judge to raise the Comstock law from the dead, essentially, as a viable uh, legal strategy uh, in order to achieve a ban on abortion, on medication abortion, um, you know, as a historian, I just really saw uh, us kind of coming full circle and not, and not in a good way. And talk more about this um, and talk more about who uh, Comstock was and what this means about where this country is going. Yeah, that's that's a, such a good question, because I think we do have to look at Anthony Comstock specifically as a person. Um, it, it illustrates uh, in many ways how one person can have a really outsized impact on our democracy. Comstock uh, served in the Union Army, where he was really scandalized by uh, the amount of alcohol, pornography, uh, you know, um, that his fellow soldiers were, were taking advantage of uh, during the Civil War. And after the war, he went to New York, where he aligned himself with the Young Men's Christian Association. And he started a a sort of offshoot of that group called the uh, New York uh, uh, Society for the Suppression of Vice. And at that point, he actually went, he was funded to go down to Washington, D.C. and to lobby Congress for this uh, obscenity law. Um, And he was just obsessed with sex, and he was able to get the senators and, and representatives at the time on board. And it was one of the quickest laws that uh, that has ever been passed in American history. Um, there was really, really no opposition to it. Um, um, and so, yes. Keep, uh, I was just going to say, Michelle Goldberg writes in The New York Times, the Comstock Act, the notorious anti-obscenity law used to indict the Planned Parenthood founder, Margaret Sanger, banned books by D.H. Lawrence and arrest people by the thousands, turning 150 last month. Yes, this was a law with teeth. Um, there were steep fines for violating the Comstock Act. Uh, certainly, you could be sentenced to hard labor. You could be sentenced to years in prison. And this really ensnared ordinary Americans in this kind of vast anti-obscenity legal regime. And it's one of those things where, um, you know, when you look at it as a whole, it it was, you know, absolutely a violation of, of the Constitution. Um, and it wasn't until the 1920s that there were cases that began to kind of chip away 
First Amendment cases that began to chip away at the Comstock Act. Uh, but really, it, w it was one of those laws that, uh, at, at the federal level, that just uh, kind of increased and expanded an already existing anti-abortion legal regime because there had been uh, state laws existing uh, for 30 or 40 years before that, uh, before the Comstock Act was passed. We always talk about resistance. And in 2019, uh, you wrote a piece in The Times, women have always had abortions. Uh, you talk about the 17th and 18th centuries abortion legal under common law before quickening or when the pregnant woman could feel the fetus move, beginning around 16 weeks. You write later, beginning in the 1850s, however, the crusade against abortion began in earnest. This fascinating history, relay it. Yeah. So there were uh, there's actually no laws about abortion at all um, until the, the beginning in the 1830s and 1840s. But in the 1850s, uh, particularly with the sort of spearheading of the American Medical Association, uh, physicians in this country began to work with uh, with legislators, white physicians, white legislators began to work uh, together to criminalize abortion essentially by 1900 in every state in the union. Um, and so what you had was a, a statewide network of anti-abortion and anti-contraception laws. And then layered on top of that by 1873, you have the Comstock Act. So somebody seeking uh, to abort a pregnancy or to prevent conception. Um, and by the way, there were, you know, reproductive control items were everywhere in America in the 19th century. You could order uh, barrier methods from any kind of mail order catalog or obtain them at the pharmacy. Uh, women were, all, were managing uh, their fertility at home with these things. Um, and, but to do so was uh, risking a, a legal arrest. I mean, it was, it was a dangerous uh, prospect to do so because of the legal regime that gets put into place at both the federal and the state levels. And finally, um Kaczmarek's language, uh, not only talking, of course, about the Comstock Act, but referring to fetuses as unborn humans. Yes. Um, so what's really kind of uh, interesting about that, um, if, if interesting is the word, is that, you know, the, the anti-abortion movement's uh, emphasis on fetal personhood these days, you know, they, that's been around since the 1960s. It's kind of decades old. But originally, the passage of abortion laws um, and the Comstock Act uh, were really not focused on the idea that the fetus was a person. These laws were rooted in um, anti-immigrant sentiment, eugenic sentiment, the idea that not enough white middle-class women were having babies because they were the ones seeking uh, contraception and abortion. And so physicians, although they kind of paid lip service to the idea that abortion was murder, um, they were really kind of, if you look at it in terms of a pie, uh, that was just kind of one piece of the pie. The other pieces of the pie included misogyny, uh, racism, and, uh, and, and eugenic sentiment. So uh, for this kind of um, invocation of, of the fetus as a person, um, you know, that's, that's something that was, is different than it was in the 19th century. And I think what um, the, the Comstock Act reviving that might achieve is it's going to essentially, if it goes, if, if this kind of decision goes, goes through and carries forward, we're going to end up seeing a sort of nationwide ban on abortion uh, through, the met through the Comstock Act rather than uh, trying to convince the rest of America that uh, fetal personhood uh, and the 14th Amendment uh, and the rights of a fetus um, you know, should ban abortion nationwide. So they may not have to go down that path if they can uh, ban abortion nationwide 
through the Comstock Act. Lauren McIver-Thompson, I want to thank you for being with us, historian of birth thank control, you. assistant professor at Kennesaw State and a fellow at Georgia State Law, speaking to us from Atlanta, Georgia. Next up, we'll talk with two women. One, the co-founder of the Miscarriage and Abortion Hotline, who deals with um, access to abortion pills. And we'll speak to the head of the only independent abortion clinic in Arizona. Stay with us. Something better is coming Just you wait and see Something better is coming It's your job to believe May not be what you wanted But always what you need This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. In light of the recent abortion rulings in federal courts, we look at how patients will be able to access abortion and abortion pills. Dr. Linda Prine is a physician and co-founder of the Miscarriage and Abortion Hotline. She works with providers and groups to increase access to abortion pills. Dr. Prine is also affiliated with the Abortion Coalition for Medicine Access, or ACT Access. Um, Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Dr. Prine. Um, if you can talk about how this decision—again, it doesn't go into effect for seven days, and the attorney general has already said that he's appealing this decision—but what this means and the significance of um, mefepristone. Sure. Thank you, Amy. Um, well, really, abortion access has always been a problem in our country. Because we don't have universal access to medical care and many millions of people are uninsured, and even for those insured, abortion is often not covered, people have trouble, have had trouble getting abortions for a long time. And it got worse with SB8 in Texas, and now it got really worse with the Dobbs decision. And it may be about to get even worse yet again with this Texas decision. Our miscarriage and abortion hotline, which we founded in 2019, has seen the effects of these decisions over time with increased calls and increased calls for where can I get abortion pills. The beauty of the abortion pills is that people can get them through telemedicine or even from online pharmacies overseas and use them in the privacy of their own homes without having to cross picket lines and even in restricted states. So that's what our hotline is all about, is answering calls from people who are self-managing abortions and are doing it at home without necessarily any medical advice. So we are there to talk to them about what's going on, either how to get the pills or what to expect as they're using them. We talk them through that process. We have gotten increasingly busy 
in the last four years since we founded the hotline to the point where now we have 70 clinicians taking call for 18 hours out of every day. And we're very busy talking to people about these issues. So uh, we expect that this is going to only get worse with time and with this decision in Texas. Dr. Prine, you've talked about shield laws for telemedicine abortions at the cutting edge of pro-choice lawmaking. What do you mean? So the blue states have been passing laws to protect abortion care in their states. We need them to take it a step further. We need them to pass laws that would allow us the clinicians in these blue states to provide telemedicine abortion into the restricted states. It's not enough to just safeguard um, abortion within the walls of our state. We need to be helping people in these restricted states and mailing pills to them quickly. What's What we've seen happen on the hotline is that people are still getting their abortion pills. People know how to get abortions. These laws do not prevent abortion access. They just make it harder and people are getting their pills later in pregnancy, and we're hearing about that on the hotline, and it's really quite a miserable process when they're using their pills at 14 weeks, at 18 weeks, at 20 weeks. We want people to be able to get their pills in a timely fashion, as they did prior to Dobbs, when most abortions were done under eight weeks with, with the abortion pills. So the idea of the SHIELD laws is that we can prescribe the pills through telemedicine abortion to people no matter where they live, protected by our New York state, California state, Washington state laws that will say, for the purposes of this telemedicine encounter, it is occurring in the state where the clinician is sitting. So if we can get those laws passed, that will greatly expand access for all of these restricted states. And we need our pro-choice legislators to step up and help us get care to people in need. Uh, let me ask you finally, Dr. Prine, about our headline Friday, Idaho Republican Governor Brad Little signing a bill criminalizing the act of helping someone under the age of 18 obtain an abortion in another state without parental consent. The first so-called abortion trafficking law passed in the United States carries penalties of two to five years. Um, Alexis McGill-Johnson, who we had on today, said the law will isolate young people, put them in danger, including those are, who are in abusive situations. What about this term they are coining, abortion trafficking? It's just horrifying language. I mean, we're, we're used to that by now. The horrifying language that comes from these right-wing lunatics is, I, I think we just have to ignore it and move on and get care to people who need it. Um, and we will do that. The telemedicine providers across the country are going to continue to mail pills. Despite this Texas decision, despite the Dobbs decision, we're going to get pills to people as best we can. Dr. Linda Prine, physician and co-founder of the Miscarriage and Abortion Hotline. This is Democracy Now! We end today's show in Arizona with Dr. Deshaun Taylor, an OBGYN physician, abortion provider, owner of Desert Star Family Planning in Phoenix, Arizona, the only black-owned independent abortion provider in Arizona. Her upcoming book, Undo Burden, a black woman physician on being Christian and pro-abortion in the reproductive justice movement. 
Can you respond to what's happening right now, the climate we are in, the judge's decision Friday night out of uh, Texas um, that would, if it is enacted, um, overturn and more than 20-year-old FDA decision to make available a pill that is responsible for more than half the abortions in the United States. Dr. Taylor. Good morning. As the founder and CEO of Desert Star Family Planning in Phoenix, Arizona, I have seen for 10 years firsthand how access to the safe and highly effective method of medication abortion with mifepristone and mesoprostol improves the lives of my patients. It is increasingly being used for miscarriage management as well. And it is very disconcerting how the reproductive autonomy of millions hangs in the balance in a case brought by known anti-abortion extremists with no real scientific merit. It is leaving pregnant people and the clinics that provide care for them in limbo as we figure out how this plays out. Um, the Food and Drug Administration has reviewed mifepristone several times over the 23 years since the medication was approved and reached the same conclusion as other regulatory agencies in other countries that medication is safe and effective. And so it is just extremely heartbreaking to consider the idea that the most common method of abortion across the country could no longer be available to people who need it, especially in this climate that we're in right now, where there are whole populations, whole regions of the country who don't have access to an abortion provider. Last week, Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs, now the Democratic governor of Arizona, vetoed Senate Bill 1600 that, if passed, would have forced doctors to treat fetuses that have no chance of survival and require hospitals to report all abortions performed to the Department of Health Services. Can you talk about the significance of the new Democratic governor vetoing this bill? My gosh, we are just thankful that we have that protective backstop of the governor's veto. Um, I will share that we already have a so-called fetal born alive law in Arizona. It was signed by a then Republican governor back in 2017, I believe. And so when I saw this bill going through the legislature, I'm like, what are we doing here? We're rinsing and repeating like this is there are more important things that we we need our legislators to be doing um, when they go to the state legislature. And so, especially in light of us operating under a 15-week abortion ban, really what SB 1600 would do was—would be making more traumatic birth outcomes— worse for families that are already suffering and honestly would not have any impact on abortion at all, considering we aren't providing abortion care in Arizona beyond 15 weeks. I wanted to ask you about all these reports that are coming out right now. The rate of black maternal mortality increased by nearly 26 percent between 2019 and 2020. Um, Vox reporting black women seek abortions at the highest rate and will face greater rates of maternal mortality without the right to choose under Roe. And AP reporting, if you are black or Hispanic in a conservative state that already limits access to abortion, you are far more likely than a white 
white woman to have one. And if the U.S. Supreme Court allows states to further restrict or even ban abortions, minority women will bear the brunt of it, according to statistics analyzed by the Associated Press. Uh, Dr. Taylor, if you could explain. So these disparities in healthcare in general exist. And so we're seeing them exacerbated as it relates to reproductive health care. We know that black people are impacted greatly across all areas of health care, all disease states. We see that black people are sicker and are dying more exponentially of across the board. And so when we look at pregnancy, we have to understand that some of this mortality is related to the fact that there are inequities in health and the health of black people. And so those don't disappear automatically once someone becomes pregnant. And so when we are banning abortion, then what we're doing is we're creating a situation where people are forced to continue pregnancies that are dangerous to their lives. And so we have that that part of it where people are sick and pregnant, but then we also have the inequities in access to health care and the treatment of people of color by the medical industrial complex as it relates to um, complicit, uh, inherent bias and all these things that people are being forced to check boxes and do DEI about. But ultimately, the racism in the country is reflected in the medical system. And so we have a whole host of systems that are acting against people of color and uh, increasing their chances of dying during childbirth. Dr. Taylor, I also want to ask you about undocumented immigrants. In New York, um, there is a real push right now to get the governor, um, Governor Kathy Hochul, to sign off on health care for undocumented immigrants. Um, you are in Arizona, of course, which is, uh, to say the least, a, a uh, a border state um, where undocumented people do not have access to health care. Can you talk about what access they have when it comes to reproductive rights to um, to abortion? There are a lot of laws that really impact in a negative way an undocumented person's ability to access health care. We have ID laws. We have ICE presence near um, facilities that provide health care. We have checkpoints where people would have to go through. Potentially, they just pop up in places. And so there are a lot of opportunities for people to become ensnared. Um, we have actual evidence where health care workers call immigration authorities on, on um, patients who are undocumented, who are just trying to help take care of themselves. And so the, it's a real obstacle, um, a real hurdle for people who are in the country and they're undocumented. And I always want people to understand that someone's documentation status does not mean that they don't have basic human rights to healthcare. And it's just extremely distressing to see how this plays out. Mm -hmm. I will say that we in Arizona have some practical support organizations. There's a lot of community 
um, support to help all people seeking abortion get the care they need. But there are some specific interests in in making sure that our undocumented um, brother uh, sisters get the care that they need. And also, too, what we're seeing is an increase in self-managed abortion through herbal remedies and other types of things, as well as uh, misoprostol only, has been increasing over the course of time just because of all the restrictions that already existed in Arizona. Dr. Deshaun Taylor, we want to thank you so much for being with us. OBGYN physician, abortion provider, owner of Desert Star Family Planning in Phoenix, Arizona, only black-owned independent abortion provider in Arizona. Her upcoming book, Und- Du Burden, a black woman physician on being Christian and pro-abortion in the reproductive justice movement. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.